Nasty Pasty is indeed back, everyone. Thanks for tuning in as usual, whomever and wherever you are. I'd hope that you'd know what you've got yourself in for, but in case you're new here, or you just love listening to some obsessed sap verbalise his endearing views of violent films, feel free to listen. My name's Andy Roberts. I'm 27 years old, and I'm as gay as a rainbow-patterned pashmina delicately draped on a glitter-encrusted unicorn horn. Not that it has anything to do with the show, which dedicates itself solely to horror films from the 1960s through the 70s and 80s, right up until 1990, specifically to compare and contrast chosen examples with the strange phenomenon of video nasties. Like any decent society, we all have brief moments of madness and panic over something rather arbitrary, heightening the sensational aspects using local rags, and obsessing long and hard about the damage it's doing to our children. If it's not the satanic panic of America, it's the choking game, in, or in today's climate, the Momo Challenge. All of them turn out to be relatively harmless, and really more of a commentary on how quickly an innocuous situation can spread rapidly out of control and panic an entire world. And yes, everyone, the Momo Challenge is just as harmless, just read a bit further into it. Unfortunately, we all know that it's not really as simple as just asking people to read into things when the face value story is just too tempting not to share or buy into, which is exactly what happened when a few choice conservative voices told the whole of the UK that our children were watching obscenely violent tapes and becoming criminals before our eyes. Many years on, it's frighteningly obvious that it was a huge load of hairy bollocks. But modern problems like that insistent Facebook privacy scam and the Momo controversy prove that stupidity sadly continues to prevail against common sense. This podcast at least aims to prove that, in relation to the video nasties anyway, a group of horror and exploitation films that were pointed out for being particularly obscene scapegoats for a whole slew of crimes being committed across the entire country. There were plenty of other films that were just as bad. Why were they not considered? Is it because there was no real issue anyway, and that the examples chosen were just exploitable targets for the newspapers? You decide. Today, we're tackling a theme based on another type of moral panic, the stranger danger theme. Popularised most often in the past, the stranger danger idea is to teach children not to talk or interact with strangers as their intentions are unknown, leaving them open to malevolent attacks. Well, the intention is quite noble, as it's generally not a good idea for kids to wander off and talk to just anybody, it's ultimately a ridiculous over-exaggeration of the real dangers towards children. In today's world, we now know that physically abusive crimes, abductions, and even child sexual abuse is statistically much more likely committed either within families or by a perpetrator that the child is familiar with. If anything, emphasising stranger danger to your kids is actually just more likely to make the child fearful or hateful of anyone societally unfamiliar as they grow up, such as ethnic minorities, foreigners, or different cultures, which of course can account for already a great deal of the problems that we have as a society. Just as the intention of the Video Nasties Panic also shows, the intention of saving children is both noble and worthwhile, but it can mull over a whole slew of other more likely results, such as impeding on an adult's right to watch horror films, and even make the UK one of the most strictly censored nations in Europe, which is actually what it ended up doing. Our reaction to moral panics is critical to the end result, and more often than not, sadly, it's to our detriment. Still, The idea of malevolent strangers in a horror film is a particularly scary idea, and our two films today both concern strangers, both in their subject matter, but also their titles. We're covering 1981's Eyes of a Stranger and 1979's When a Stranger Calls, both variations on the stalk and slash template with very different approaches and results. Let's just cut the crap about moral panics for now and settle down with Eyes of a Stranger.
A wildlife photographer finds a nude female corpse dumped inside a mangrove swamp, which then floods the news all over a city. That night, a barmaid called Debbie walks the city streets heading home, becoming ever more aware that another pair of footsteps are following her. Managing to reach home, Bev settles down to watch TV, only to receive a phone call from a mysterious man who creepily knows her name and begins to threaten her with sexual overtones. After it becomes impossible to ignore, she puts a call into the police, but receives little response. Going to clean her teeth, it soon becomes apparent that someone has broken into her home, but after getting herself suspicious and arming herself with a cleaver, the door suddenly knocks and it's her boyfriend Jeff. Offering to let her stay at his house, she goes to get dressed while he sits on the sofa, just as the killer emerges and decapitates him with the cleaver. Discovering his body and severed head inside her fish tank, Debbie is then assaulted and raped by the killer before being strangled to death with his belt. At the same time, a news reporter called Jane is having commitment issues with moving in with her boyfriend David, due to Jane's sister Tracy, who requires care on a permanent basis due to being deafblind. Arriving back in the parking lot of her home, Jane spots a suspicious man changing his clothes outside his car and disposing of something in a nearby garbage can. Waking up the next morning, Jane has breakfast with Tracy and shows David just how independent she is becoming, before having a flashback on her way from work about her childhood, when Jane's insistence on Tracy staying outdoors led to her sister being kidnapped by a stranger in a car. Arriving back home, she looks at the car space of the suspicious man she saw the previous night and makes inquiries, discovering that it's a neighbour of hers called Stanley Herbert. In an office building, a typist called Annette receives the weird phone calls, containing fragments of a music box jingle, from the killer and eventually phones a friend so that she can stay the night. Still harassed by the phone ringing, Annette makes it to her car, but is suddenly grabbed by the killer who's lurking in the back seat and she's strangled to death. Shortly afterwards, he dumps her body in a nearby swamp, but gets the car caught in a ditch of mud. After their sex session is interrupted by the noise, the guy from a nearby car gets out to help out, and is stabbed in the neck by the killer who shoves a switchblade into his neck. After his girlfriend sees the carnage from inside the car, she's suddenly grabbed from behind and has her throat slit, revealing that the killer is indeed Jane's neighbour, Herbert. After having another dream of Tracy being found after her ordeal, unable to speak, see or hear, Jane awakens to the news of more victims found in a muddy swamp and immediately checks Herbert's car and telephones his apartment to discover that he's not home. Tricking the building's janitor into allowing her access to the key, Jane gains entry to Herbert's home and snoops around, finding pornographic magazines, a cuckoo clock and a pair of muddy shoes. Managing to slip one inside her jacket as Herbert arrives back home, Jane is forced to make a quick escape out of his window and dangle from the balcony, which almost gets her caught. Later, when she presents the shoe as evidence to David, he instead chastises her for breaking and entering, and she rejects him as a result. Deciding to take matters into her own hands, Jane secures a pistol for protection and directly contacts Herbert by telephone, refusing to identify herself, but accusing Herbert of his crimes. Frustrated at being harassed in the same way, Herbert visits a strip club and after becoming enamoured with the exotic dancer, stalks and follows her home, killing her when she takes a shower. Upon his return home, he realises that Jane is the one who called him when he recognises her voice on a news segment and begins to notice Tracy on her balcony the next day. After Jane fails to reach Herbert again, she goes for a jog, leaving Tracy alone, who is completely unaware of both a phone message from David confirming that the muddy shoe matches the crime scene and the fact that her dog has been strangled and lies dead in a corner of the apartment. 
Herbert stands and watches her as she makes her dinner, moving objects to confuse her. Suddenly becoming aware that a stranger's nearby, she runs away only to get grabbed by Herbert, who forces himself on her and begins to grope her. Managing to douse him in scalding coffee, Tracy flees his clutches just as Jane returns to the building and enters Herbert's apartment, testing the cuckoo clock, which then plays a music box chime, noted by a previous victim before she died. Herbert manages to track Tracy down, hiding in a closet, and begins to rape her on the bed. The sudden trauma suddenly brings back a semblance of her eyesight and she's able to grab Jane's gun from the drawers and shoots at Herbert, getting him in the abdomen and seemingly killing him. Wandering into the bathroom and in shock at regaining her sight, Tracy fails to notice Herbert behind her who attacks her again, just as Jane enters the apartment. Grabbing her gun, Jane fires into Herbert's head, splattering the glass with blood and sending him flying into the bathtub, killing him once and for all. As Jane embraces her sister, she weeps as Tracy utters her sister's name for the first time since childhood. You know, you could help me solve a big problem. What's that? I don't know what to do with the left side of my closets. (laughs) There's plenty of space. And you can have it with an open-ended option and no binding clauses. Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take a postponement on that one, counselor. I think you're trying to influence the decision of the court. I can always serve you with a restraining order. Hey, I was just about to go into my final argument. Well, we're going to have to discuss this later because night court is adjourned. You know, I'm at the end of my probationary period. David, I thought we agreed there wasn't going to be any time schedule. And we did. But I seem to recall we also agreed that we'd talk about your sister. Not right now. All right. We can't keep putting it off forever. Do you have any idea how long it's taken me just to establish a home for Tracy? I can't just change that on her. It wouldn't be fair for her or for us. Look, I'm not asking you to do that. You know how I feel about you. That's not the point. She would be a burden to you. You would grow to resent her, and then you'd resent me, and then it would just be over for all of us. How do you know? I know. Believe me. I know. A glossy and wicked package of Alfred Hitchcock, Jallo and the gory slasher film, Eyes of a Stranger manages to have its finger in a lot of pies at once, but rather than overstretch itself, it excels in delivering taut shocks, wrangling sequences of discomfort and sustaining an underbelly of disturbing misogyny. While it's easy to shoehorn into a whole host of similarly sleazy, low-budget slashers, Ken Viderhorn's film is too rich in style, too unflinching in its disturbia, and too bloody good to just shelve away with the others. One of the more apparent building blocks that we have here to start with is a way that the film views its female cast. The misogyny and instances of male voyeurism are quite evident from the beginning, with the visual element of the photographer finding the naked body of the woman and the gawking at a naked stripper in a sleazy bar to the disproportionate look of hatred that the newsman shoots at Jane who dares to interrupt him on TV. Even in the response from the police in the film's opening gambit, Debbie's ordeal is treated no more seriously than a cat has stuck up a tree, even suggesting that she's just been watching too much TV. There's even smaller, less obvious moments, like when David playfully gets aggressive to Jane when he's kissing her, or Annette's friend giving an interview on TV where she admits we all get calls like that at one point or another, referencing the prevalent culture of chauvinistic behaviour from men towards women that still exists to this day. Even later in the story, David's admittedly logical dismissal of Jane's hypothesis is almost a minor form of misogyny itself, refusing to accept that a woman can be right about the suspect, despite the fact that she's ultimately proven right. Of course, the main sequences of this hatred of women are the signature harassing phone calls from the killer, who vomits forth both violent threats and sexual aggression in each communication. 
The threat of the killer, while not exclusive to women, is just especially aimed at women, specifically to terrorise them with threats of rape and the violating manner of their impending death before he actually carries it out. While it's not exactly a unique concept to have in a slasher movie, it is more expertly woven into the narrative and the cinematography of the film. It's an essential thread in the tapestry, if you will, much more deeply ingrained than just a few bloody kills perpetrated on women. Apart from this heavy theme, the film also likes to play with perceptions and expectations quite often. While it starts as quite a routine slasher picture, with the finding of a dead body in the first true stalk and slash sequence, it starts to morph into a sort of jello picture with the focus on the investigative role undertaken by Jane, and her flashbacks through trauma from her past, which ultimately forms a part of the main narrative when the killer begins to target her. Before this happens, however, the film throws a large curveball by revealing who the killer is at the halfway point, instantly turning the film into much more of a cat-and-mouse game, as Jane begins to close in on Herbert's guilt. It then takes a little bit of Hitchcock and even blends a kind of film noir vibe, as Jane oftentimes resembles a femme fatale, blackmailing Herbert while surrounded by the smoke of her cigarette, surrounded by stylish surroundings. The music too helps this noir connotation, as the film is so thick with dread, featuring deep synthesised drones mixed with creepy tinkle tunes. It also helps that huge swathes of shadow, glints of glass and shiny edges permeate the film's cinematography, conveying a hugely effective sense of isolation and danger. It's actually a crime to me that the cinematographer, Minnie Rojas, literally did nothing else, as the film looks so beautiful and harrowing in equal measure. By the end of the film, it becomes quite apparent that many genres and influences have combined to give it an all manner of flavours. There's a major Hitchcockian vibe, like the investigating the neighbours being a rip from rear window, and the dumping of the female victims' bodies in a swamp is very, very similar to Psycho. There's also the sequence of the killer attacking a woman in the shower, another less transparent reference to Psycho, while two moments involving the killer emerging from the back of a car and Tracy leaving the bedroom after shooting Herbert being almost shot for shot taken wholesale from John Carpenter's Halloween. There's also a bit of a similarity with the 1981 video nasty Terrorize, or Night School as it's known in the US, in that the scene of Debbie being followed in the beginning is almost shot for shot in the movie, and there's the scene of Jeff being decapitated and his head stuck in a fish tank, which is the exact same as the modus operandi of the killer in that film too. Other fleeting references pop up to other horror films as well, like the film that Debbie is watching is the Nazi zombie flick Shockwaves, which the director had also helmed, and in one shot outside a cinema there's a poster of Dawn of the Dead. I do have to admit, just before we talk about the characters, that I actually fell victim to a jump scare, which is hands down the first time I've done so in about ten years. The sequence of the killer suddenly appearing in a doorway, I won't say which one or I'd spoil it, but it legitimately made me shit my pants. I have to give this film major credit for that alone. I can usually predict these things quite well, but I have to submit and say that this one got me real good. There's other really creepy moments too, of course, like when the killer appears in a shower partition with his face pressed against the glass, or when he appears Michael Myers style in the back of a car. We also have some pretty strong characters to latch onto as well, namely our heroine Jane, who manages to redeem herself from the pit of misogyny that the film places her in. After feeling a huge responsibility to what happened to her sister Tracy, the film almost plays out as her own personal journey of redemption and absolution from an intensely misogynistic world. She's a notable beacon of feminist empowerment, being confident to not commit to her boyfriend's offer of moving in, as well as not giving up when David accuses her of stepping too far in her investigations. After being brave enough to interrupt her male co-presenters to stress the seriousness of the crimes, and even gathering evidence at great risk, she regains control of the situation, first by securing a gun, and then directly confronting Herbert via telephone, refusing to back down. Her journey is somewhat tested when Herbert realises the identity of his blackmailer and attacks Tracy in revenge. The moment when she sees from Herbert's balcony that Tracy is in danger is rather effective. You can almost see all of the emotions hitting her at once, but especially the guilt of having put her sister in harm's way yet again. 
Thankfully, and without the help of a man, she's able to rescue her sister at the penultimate moment, and she shoots the piece of misogynistic trash squarely between the eyes. She's a great character to be behind, and she could certainly hold her own amongst the Laurie Strodes and the Nancy Thompsons of the generation. Herbert, on the other hand, is quite the enigma, despite being revealed early on in the film and having a significant chunk of the runtime on screen. Apart from the signature scenes of telephonic harassment, Herbert has little, if any other, dialogue in the film at all. He's far from the verbal slayer that Freddy Krueger is, more akin to a more human-looking Michael Myers. His phone speeches are genuinely quite unsettling, similar to the sorority house goings-on in Black Christmas. But instead of the random, vulgar garble that Bob from Black Christmas spouts, Herbert is both literate and calculating in his verbal attack, preying on the fact that his victims are alone to describe in horrific personal detail how he will both rape and then kill them. The only other time he really speaks at all is when he's confronted by Jane over the phone, which is actually born out of frustration. In essence, Herbert becomes a victim himself when his methods are used against him, and he's utterly unable to stomach it, exploding with anger at being harassed in the same way as his victims, shouting, Stop calling me! The actual origin of his misogynistic, murderous tendencies are completely unknown, as very little is indicated as to why he feels that way. There's no explicitly mentioned history with women, save for a fleeting sight of some pornographic magazines, which may certainly indicate that he objectifies women, but it's an incredulous stretch to go from mere objectification to homicidal hatred. It is a mystery, especially as his crimes are so violent and spiteful that we know so little. But I guess that's why they call it a stranger, I guess. Tracy is another important character, as it's precisely her kidnap and molestation in the past that makes it so important for her sister Jane to catch Herbert, to make up for the fact that it was Jane's careless attitude that led to Tracy being outside when a pervert came along. Like her sister, however, though, Tracy is such a headstrong character, pushing past her disability of being deafblind and being able to do most of the basics herself, like going to the laundry and preparing her own meals. The final scene of Tracy being attacked was very difficult to watch, though, as a result, since there's that extra layer of horror as the victim is disabled in a large way, being unable to see or hear her attacker approach. Other characters, while less important, as they're either slasher victims or circumstantial players, are no less effective as the standard of acting is actually pretty damn good. With such a solid plot and endearing effective characters, it's just the cherry on top of the cake that there's also some rather decent kills in the film. You get quite a nasty decapitation via meat cleaver, and actually one of the most effective severed heads that I've seen, gruesomely dumped inside a fish tank. Debbie is strangled with a belt, and while it's not bloodily explicit, it's very uncomfortable nonetheless, as it's coupled with the sexual element of Herbert assaulting her at the same time. Annette's death is visually the same as Annie's death from Halloween, being grabbed by Herbert who lurks in the back seat of a car. But the two unfortunate souls who happen upon him dumping her body receive brutal ends via a switchblade. The bloke gets stabbed in the neck rather gorily, and the girl has her throat slit, with a stylistic choice of lingering on her slow death, fulfilling that voyeuristic template that the film has sustained from the beginning. The rest of the film after this is relatively bloodless, but Tracy's attack later is just as disturbing due to her condition, and the fact that Herbert is angrier than ever due to Jane's intrusiveness into his business. We do get a final money shot, however, when Jane puts a bullet in Herbert's head, deliciously decorating the shower glass with his cranial fluid. It is a shame that we didn't see more of Tom Savini's work in this, but I think the style in this film is on par with the substance. Carpenter's Halloween proves that you don't need blood to make a good slasher film, and the gory deaths here only accentuate the talent behind the camera in making a very good and solid accomplished slasher hybrid. In conclusion, this film has fast become one of the fondest films that I've covered on here, and I think you'd be crazy not to check this out already. It's got enough of the sanguine stuff to pique the interests of gorehounds, enough panache and style to impress Jello and Hitchcock fans, with a real sleazy underbelly for those fans of urban and suburban grime. Lauren Chews plays the main role of Jane, quite effectively really, as she had that headstrong confident vibe and blonde bombshell kind of effect, very similar to Virginia Madsen in Candyman or Janet Leigh in Psycho. 
She's probably most recognisable for her role on the TV show The Love Boat, but I actually recognise her from the X-Files game from the late 90s, which was a full-motion video-type game that felt like a very extra-long episode. In her debut film role, actress Jennifer Jason Lee played the incapacitated Tracy, and she's rather recognisable now for all sorts of well-known productions, like Flesh and Blood, Backdraft, Single White Female, Dolores Claiborne, Existence, and most recently The Hateful Eight, Amityville The Awakening, and even the new series of Twin Peaks. John DeSanti played the murderous misogynist Herbert, He'd been in 1979's Hot Stuff, Batteries Not Included, and 1997's The Relic. The minor role of Roger was played by Ted Rocher, who popped up later in Piranha 2, The Spawning, and Porky's 2, The Next Day, while Mona was played by actress Tony Crabtree, who was later in Police Academy 5. Dr. Bob was played by Robert Small, who later appeared in the 1986 film Flight of the Navigator, and also Problem Child 2. Dan Fitzgerald had the small role of a bartender, graduating from roles on Marco, The Jaws of Death, and The Final Countdown, and later appearing in 1985's Invasion USA and 1989's Nightmare Beach. Finally, there was Sonia Zominia, who pops up as an old lady, and she had a small appearance as the crazy bag lady in the video nasty The Fun House. Director Ken Viederhorn was a New Yorker by birth and got his first break when he got a job at CBS Television, where he worked as a gopher at first and worked his way up to a news producer. One of his other well-known productions is the Nazi zombie flick Shockwaves from 1977, which starred Peter Cushing and John Carradine and introduced the first instance of zombies underwater, long before the video nasty Zombie Flesh Eaters and Zombie Lake borrowed that idea. He also worked on Meatballs Part 2, Return of the Living Dead Part 2, and 1989's Dark Tower. The writer on Eyes of a Stranger was Ron Kurz, famous for his work on Friday the 13th Part 2, 3 and 4, after which he appeared in the documentary Crystal Lake Memories. Richard Einhorn composed the very effective soundtrack, and had done similar work on Shockwaves, the video nasties Don't Go in the House and Rosemary's Killer, the thriller Dead of Winter, and slasher film Blood Rage. Editor Rick Shane went to work on 1982's Blood Bride, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, Dead of Winter, 2000's Pitch Black, and 2008 Marvel film Hulk. Finally, the special makeup effects were done by Tom Savini, whom we previously covered on Deranged. If you're a horror fan and haven't heard of Tom Savini, though, then where on earth have you been? He's quite a recurring face in the video Nasty Panic, too, as he provided the gore effects for many of the offending films, including Dawn of the Dead, Martin, The Prowler, Midnight, Fred of the 13th, The Burning, and he was even a consultant on Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. He was assisted on Eyes of a Stranger by Dean Gates, who later went to work on Day of the Dead, Invasion USA, Nightmare Weekend, Raw Deal, Maximum Overdrive, Blue Velvet, Maniac Cop 2, Jurassic Park, Coneheads, Adam's Family Values, and Phantasm 3. The film was released in 1981 to not particularly positive reviews, calling it a cheap and sleazy horror movie, with even some people referring to it as an unimaginative slasher thriller that plays like a sleazy TV movie of the week. How very dare they? Amanda Reyes, have you heard this? With a less than stellar critical performance, the film managed to recoup its budget and earn a little more, earning just a little over a million dollars on its $800,000 budget. The R-rated print, though, that was shown in the US was truncated to most of the gore sequences, like the opening decapitation and the dumping in the fish tank, the stabbing and throat slitting of the couple in the car, which basically left only the penultimate gunshot intact. This version was submitted for cinema exhibition in the UK, where it lost an additional 1 minute and 25 seconds for Debbie's strangulation and scenes of nudity. A subsequent version on video from Warner Brothers surfaced in the early 80s, bearing none of the cuts of the ex-certificate version. Presumably because they realised their mistake, the UK-approved version was also released by Warner Brothers later the same year, so both versions were available concurrently. Considering it's actually more gory and disturbing than a lot of the video nasties, I'm really surprised that this one wasn't picked up at all. The cover even featured sort of a semi-nude lady being perved at by a peeping Tom using binoculars. 
Regardless, the VHS was banned in the wake of the Video Recordings Act, and eventually the BBFC-sanctioned version, with nearly two minutes removed, became the standard version that was released in 1986 on VHS. Really sadly, the film hasn't turned up again since, so if anyone's out there, us Brits would love this movie getting a modern release. The US already have this on DVD, so I'm mega jealous, actually. Now that Eyes of a Stranger is done, let's move on to our next film, When a Stranger Calls. A young woman called Jill babysits for the Mandrakis family as they go out for dinner. While the children sleep, Jill speaks to a friend of hers before working on some college papers. The phone then begins to ring incessantly, where a mysterious man asks her if she's checked the children. Suddenly hearing a clatter in the house, she goes to investigate, only to discover that it's just an ice dispenser. As the phone rings once more, she confronts the speaker but receives no response. After phoning the restaurant to speak to the Mandrakis family and failing, Jill calls the police, but is told that the issue is nearly not that serious if it's not being threatening or obscene. After another call in which the stranger infers he's watching her by asking, why have you not checked the children? Jill panics and begins to lock the doors and considers going upstairs to check, only for the phone to continue ringing. Calling the police again, Jill is requested to keep the stranger on the line for longer so that they can trace the origin of the call. Upon the next inevitable call, Jill asks if the man can see her. When he responds in the affirmative, she asks if he wants to scare her. He answers by saying he wants her blood, causing her to declare that the police will save her, at which point he hangs up. The next call comes through and it's the police who declare that the call is coming from inside the house and for Jill to exit as soon as possible. She heads to the front door, and as she struggles with the locking chain, she spots a man's shadow on the landing. Finally getting the door open, she screams as she runs from the property. Detective Clifford arrives on the scene and is informed by a patrolman called Garber that the children upstairs were killed several hours ago, shortly after Jill's arrival, and that the suspect is an Englishman called Kurt Duncan, who's taken into custody. Seven years after this event, Dr. Mandrakis hires Clifford, who's now a private investigator, to track down Duncan, who has recently escaped from the mental institution where he was sectioned. Going to visit the hospital where he escaped from, Clifford finds that Duncan was subjected to electroconvulsive therapy and a whole host of psychotropic drugs. Whilst in a bar somewhere, Duncan himself tries to have a conversation with a woman called Tracy by offering her a cigarette light and some drinks. When her attempts to ignore him are not noticed by Duncan, he reaches out and touches her, which triggers her to aggressively scream at him, leading to him being beaten up by one of the other patrons and removed from the bar. At a house party, Clifford meets up with Garber, who has been promoted in the police force, to reveal that Duncan has escaped and to ask for his help. Tracy leaves the bar and tries to hail a taxi, but ultimately decides to walk home, unaware that she's being followed by Duncan. As she reaches her apartment, she notices Duncan waiting in the hallway, who apologises to her for his actions. 
Feeling pity on him for the beating, she apologises as well and goes inside to answer the phone, only to notice that Duncan has then made himself comfortable on her sofa. While initially agreeing to meet for coffee, his odd behaviour causes Tracy to ask him to leave, after which he knocks back on the door and tries to open her front door. Surmising that Duncan would be homeless, Clifford checks around the local vagrants for any sightings and gets a positive lead, eventually leading to Tracy, who's informed by Clifford of Duncan's crimes. While initially resistant, she agrees to help Clifford catch him, as does Garber when Clifford reveals that he intends for Duncan to not survive their encounter. Tracy has a drink at the bar as usual and walks home, followed by Clifford who's keeping an eye out for Duncan. When he seems to have not put in an appearance, Clifford reassures her that he'll be patrolling outside and has her secure herself in her apartment. As she enters her kitchen, Duncan emerges from a closet and attacks her, causing her to scream and alert Clifford, who gives chase. He loses Duncan, however, after he slides down the fire escape and disappears into the maze of streets, ending up in a public toilet where he strips naked and has flashbacks of his murder of the two children, which causes him to cry. He eventually makes his way to a homeless mission, where Clifford tracks him down and stalks the beds, trying to spot him. Making a quick getaway, Duncan is eventually cornered by Clifford, who fails in his attempt to kill him, allowing him to escape. A few days later in the suburbs, Jill is preparing to go out for dinner with her husband Stephen, asking a babysitter called Sharon to look after her two children. Whilst at the restaurant, Jill receives a phone call and hears the voice of Duncan again, asking her if she's checked the children. Going into a full panic attack, Stephen takes the phone from her and calls Sharon, where everything seems fine at home. Suddenly, the phone goes dead and the pair rush home with the police to find the home seemingly normal. Garber overhears the police mention Jill's incident at the station and phones Clifford to warn him. While back at the house, Jill goes downstairs for a drink when the power in the house suddenly goes out. She then goes back upstairs to find some rather odd happenings like a piece of candy which has suddenly appeared in her child's hands, her phone has been disconnected, and there's a strange muffled voice coming from the closet. Becoming panicked, Jill shakes Stephen awake next to her in bed, only to discover that it is in fact Duncan lying in bed with her, who then tries to strangle her to death. He's then suddenly shot by Clifford, who arrives in the nick of time. As he then uncovers an unconscious Stephen in the closet, Jill bursts into tears at the recent events. It's me. I know. Who are you? I'm not going to be here much longer. Dr. Mandrakis and his wife are coming home. I know. Can you see me? Yes. Sorry, I turned the lights down. Turn them back up if you like. (laughs) Don't. Don't. You really scared me. That's what you wanted. Is that what you wanted? No. What do you want? Dr. Mandrakis will take me home. Or maybe even the police. Call the police. I I want to talk to you. Sacker. Listen to me. We've traced 
the call. It's coming from inside the house. Our squad car's on the way over there right now. Just get out of that house. Arriving in the fruitful crucible of the post-Halloween slasher craze, When a Stranger Calls is actually a story of much older origins. Taking its cue from the urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs, Fred Walton's film is a stalk-and-slash exercise that is not only effective at wrangling tension and dread from the subject matter, but it's an influential piece of horror in its own right. Essentially, the film is an enhanced remake, if you will, of a short film based on the urban legend. The urban legend roughly describes a young teenage girl who's babysitting children when the telephone begins to ring. Answering it, she hears an unidentified man who asks her to check on the children. Ignoring the advice and assuming it to be a prank call, she's soon bombarded with harassing phone calls from the same person asking the same incessant question before she finally caves in and calls the police. The police offer to trace the call on the next instance, and after the inevitable next time passes, they call the young girl and ask her to calmly leave the premises. Doing so, she meets the police outside, and is horrified to learn that the phone calls were coming from a second phone inside the house, an intruder having murdered the children and harassed the babysitter all night. There's many variations on the legend as it's told by different people. The children sometimes survive the tale, but they're most often killed by the intruder in various methods, with an axe, a knife, or even bare hands. The identity of the killer also varies from being the children's older brother doing a prank, a disgruntled parent, the children playing a joke, a random loony, or in some circumstances the girl herself, who's suffering from dissociative identity disorder. The ending of the tale is also different in most cases. Oftentimes the girl panics and runs upstairs to check the children, sometimes finding them alive and locked in a closet or tied up, to finding the killer standing over their dismembered bodies, or spotting the killer's face looking at her through a window, only to find out later that it was a mirror, meaning that the killer was behind her the whole time. While the tale can be retold in almost any configuration the storyteller wants to, the creepy edge to the legend is that it's commonly attributed to an actual crime that occurred in 1950, when teenager Janet Christman was babysitting for the Romack family in their house. At around 10.30pm on the night of March 18th, the police received a call from the Romack residence which consisted of hysterical screaming and a clear come quick shouted by a female voice. The phone then cut off, and since the duration was so short, the police were unable to determine the origin. At 1.30am, the Romax returned home to find their doors were unlocked, an outside light was on, and a window was shattered. But worst of all was Janet's badly maimed body in the living room. She had been raped, beaten with a blunt object, stabbed in the head with a pencil, and finally strangled by a piece of wire. Despite a garden hose outside the shattered window, police refuted claims that an intruder had broken in as the inside curtains were completely undisturbed, meaning that no one had actually passed through after it was broken. Coupled with the fact that the doors were unlocked, the police hypothesised that Janet had either known her killer and let them enter personally, or that the killer had gained access much earlier and was in the house the whole time, only breaking the window post-murder to throw off the scent. Unfortunately, Christman's murder was never resolved, and no one was apprehended about her death. Back to this film, though. The short that I mentioned was 1977's The Sitter, which was also directed by Fred Walton. Getting the idea with his friend Steve Feek, Walton funded his own 22-minute short based on the urban legend, which starred Lucia Strolza as the babysitter being harried by the mysterious stranger. It was completed on a final budget of $12,000, but both Walton and Feek were dismayed to find out that the reaction to short films was rather flimsy, and the film only managed to play in select theatres for a single week. When John Carpenter's film, however, was released in 1978, it brought some new inspiration for Walton, who decided to remake the short and expand it into a full-length feature similar to that of Halloween. This inspiration is rather significant, however, as When a Stranger Calls actually plays out like the Halloween film in a number of ways. Both films concern a child murderer who's institutionalised before escaping many years later to commit more mayhem on their return. 
More specifically, both killers harass babysitters, they're pursued by an official who knows the original crime rather well and intends to kill them rather than apprehend them, and both final girls are rescued by said male official upon the final scene. This is ultimately where the similarities end, however, as When a Stranger Calls doesn't quite fit into the slasher template. While it certainly emulates features of the stalk and slash model, there's very little slash involved and an overabundance of stalk. Michael Myers, by comparison, does indeed stalk a lot, but he does accrue some victims as the slasher film denotes. Kurt Duncan, with the exception of the off-screen child murders in the beginning, gains no additional victims in the film's runtime, which is rather essential, really, in terming something as a slasher film. That's not to say that the film is in any way terrible because of it, it's just not strictly a slasher film. It's more of a thriller film really, and it would be unfair to put it in the same boat as Halloween, despite the heavy inspiration. Think of Shaun of the Dead, which was inspired by Dawn of the Dead, but it's actually a horror-themed comedy. So, it would equally be unfair to compare the effectiveness of such a film in comparison to the original granddaddy of all zombie horrors. One of the most iconic elements of the film, though, are the first opening 20 minutes, which are near flawless in wreaking intense horror and a fraught, desperate sense of tension. This section is actually a near-perfect shot-by-shot recreation of Walton's 1977 short, The Sitter. But despite not being the original source material, this opening sequence is consistently noted as one of the most infamous and terrifying openings of a horror film. I wouldn't go so far as to call it terrifying, as frankly we've all seen much scarier by today's standards, but it is indeed an iconic and well-executed section. So much so that Wes Craven directly referenced it in the opening of 1996's Screen, which plays out in a very similar fashion. Walton ramps up the tension in this scene even more by having the telephone trills get increasingly louder as the scene goes on. It ends in a suitably creepy fashion by having the intruder finally appear as a sinister shadow on the landing. Unfortunately, at least for me, this is where the film goes a little off the path for me. This 20-minute section of the film feels quite separate from the rest of it, which then plays out a little bit like a serial killer slash cop movie, with Duncan stalking random women in the city whilst being pursued by Clifford. While there's certainly moments which are effective, like Duncan's bloody visions of him murdering the children, and where he stalks Tracy by hiding her in a closet, the tone of these sequences are a little mismatched to the starkly downbeat opening. Thankfully, it does return for the third act of the film, which focuses again on Jill's character, now moved on from the trauma of what happened. The sequence of her hearing Duncan's voice once more in the restaurant is particularly effective, due to Carol Kane's quite convincing, terrified performance. She completely breaks down in the middle of the restaurant, and you really feel that sense of helplessness and anguish as Duncan's voice enters her life once more. This leads to quite an effective final sequence, where Jill discovers to her horror that Duncan has replaced her husband in bed. The structure of the film is therefore a little muddled as you get an incredible opening, a fairly flat middle, and then an exciting ending. It feels like a modern trilogy, basically, in one feature-length film. Like its inspiration, When a Stranger Calls is also incredibly light on the gore, featuring only a splash when Duncan has his disturbed visions. Since he doesn't really get to attack a victim properly in the film, there's a de-emphasis on any sanguine stuff and a major emphasis on the tension from his acting creepy. It's certainly effective enough, but I feel it could have been a lot more memorable by punctuating it with some actual deaths. For a film released so soon after Halloween, though, you couldn't really expect it to be a bloodbath either. The slasher wouldn't really evolve into that until the release of Friday the 13th the following year. Jill is much more of a non-traditional final girl, though the term is probably incorrectly applied in this instance. Instead of being able to fight her attacker off, Jill is portrayed as someone really who's at the mercy of others to rescue her. She's not exactly a pushover, she's brave enough to keep her stalker on the phone and try to prove her strength in confronting him, but she's just often rescued at the hands of the men around her. If not the police, then it's her husband that she relies on, or when he's unavailable, Clifford enters to save the day. It's not exactly misogynistic to portray her as the damsel in distress, but it doesn't exactly try too hard in pushing for a strong female presence either. She's rather ambivalent when it comes to her strength, but Carol Kane does at least portray her with a certain vulnerability and innocence that does rally you to care for her. 
You're just as scared as she is seeing the effect that Duncan's having on her, and you'd be upset if something had happened to her during the film's runtime. The killer, Kurt Duncan, is also oddly portrayed with a strange degree of sensitivity, as we follow him around as he tries to make a connection with Tracy. While he does initially seem harmless, it's hard to reconcile his crimes with how he acts seven years later, especially when he's being beaten in the bar, for example. You do feel a sense of pity for him despite his horrendous murders of the kids, which isn't really helped by the fact that it takes place off-screen to characters that you don't even see. Even his nightmarish visions later, which give some sort of glimpse at the horror of that night, fail to elicit a really chilling response. If anything, you just feel more sorry for him, as it indicates that he's severely mentally ill and requires treatment. Duncan was actually based on an acquaintance of Walton's during his college years, who used to make everyone instantly uncomfortable by simply being present. Tony Beckley's rather awkward and strange performance is really effective at conveying the essence of a murderous stranger, but like Herbert in the previous film, we're giving no information at all as to his past, leaving us a little in the dark about how we're supposed to really analyse him as a person. Other characters are fairly stock as tropes go, especially Clifford, who to me hardly measures up to the genuinely disturbed and paranoid performance of Sam Loomis from Halloween. Tracy is an interesting character as she displays some rather human traits, such as the dichotomy of screaming at Duncan for harassing her, and then almost instantly feeling sympathy for him after getting him beaten up. Unfortunately, we spend such a short time with her that it renders these scenes feeling just too much like filler. You feel like you're just waiting for Jill's return, and it's admittedly quite a while before it happens. For those that are fans of a slasher film, you would most likely enjoy this anyway, as it feels so close to the genre, it's just occluded on the most minor terms. It's got some really effective sequences of creepy stalking, the dark cinematography really works in its favour, and the pairing of the meek Jill with the sinister Duncan is a bit of a perfect storm. It's just that you'll have to contend with a bit of a plodding middle section, some rather flat characters, and a lack of the red stuff. But for me personally, it's worth watching for that opening scene alone, and it's really not a bad movie by any means. It just doesn't rise to any particularly notable heights either. But that opening. Actress Carol Kane played the main girl of the movie, who'd already featured in Dog Day Afternoon and Annie Hall before appearing in Walton's film. She'd later have appearances in 1982's Pandemonium, 1986 comedy Jumpin' Jack Flash, 1988's Scrooged, 1993's Adam's Family Values, and Walton's sequel, When a Stranger Calls Back, in the same year. British actor Tony Beckley played the disturbing Duncan from many British motion pictures such as The Italian Job, Get Carter, and even Revenge of the Pink Panther. He was actually very ill during production as well, terminally so, but because he and Walton were good friends, he was not recast. He passed away less than six months after the film had finished wrapping, and the sequel, released in 1993, was dedicated to his memory. Tracy was played by actress Colleen Dewhurst, who appeared alongside Carol Kane on the film Annie Hall, and subsequently made appearances in 1983's The Dead Zone and The Exorcist 3 as the voice of Satan. Clifford was played by actor Charles Dunning, who also appeared in Dog Day Afternoon, while the small role of Sergeant Sacker was played by William Boyette, who was in both Bloody Birthday and the sci-fi horror The Hidden. Rutania Alder had the minor role of Mrs. Mandrakis. She'd been in Michael Cimino's Deer Hunter, and she'd later appear in Amityville 2 and Mommy Dearest. In another small role, Dick Warlock plays the barman that we see briefly. He was mainly a stuntman, but he's most famous for playing Michael Myers in 1981's Halloween 2. Director Fred Walton we've actually encountered before when we covered a similarly fake slasher film, 1986's April Fool's Day. Walton also wrote the film along with his collaborator from 1977's The Sitter, his friend Steve Feek, who also did the hilariously bad Mac and Me in 1988 and some uncredited work on Poltergeist 3. Feek also produced the film, as did Doug Shapin, who returned to do the 1993 sequel When a Stranger Calls Back. Another, Larry Kostroff, was a producer and production manager on the Kentucky Fried movie and Commando, respectively. 
while Melvin Simon, another producer, worked on 1981's Porky's, as well as the two sequels, Porky's 2 The Next Day and Porky's Revenge. Dana Kaproff, who did the soundtrack for Sam Fuller's The Big Red One, worked on the tense sounds of this film, while the cinematography was done by Academy Award nominee Donald Peterman, who received his nomination for his work on Star Trek IV and 1983's Flashdance. Other notable works of his are 1991's Point Break, 1985's Cocoon, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, and 1997's Men in Black. The editor was Sam Fatali, who worked on several episodes of The Night Gallery, whilst assistant director Lynn M. Morgan worked in the same capacity on 1978's Grease, 1992 Hockey Kids movie The Mighty Ducks, and 1991's Curly Sue. The film was released in American theatres to quite a successful run, garnering $20.1 million in total on a $1.5 million budget. It had mixed to positive reviews, mainly focusing on the first 20 minutes, which were near universally acclaimed. It had a cinematic release in the UK as well in the same year, and was passed at the AA rating, which was notably not the X, the adults-only rating. So there were real no censorship issues with the film, as the content is much more psychological. So the VHS versions that were released by Guild in 1981 were all intact without anything missing. Despite the lack of any blood, though, the almost equally bloodless terrorise became a video nasty, so there was always the risk of when a stranger calls being snatched, especially as the same people who sold as terrorise also released Fred Walton's film, Guild Video. There's no reports of any seizures of this film, though, so it escaped unscathed, really, until it became nominally out of circulation when the VRA became legally enforceable. The UK wouldn't see the film again until 1991, when a VHS version from Missing in Action video released the uncut version. Even back then, the film was considered mild enough for a 15 certificate, and it is still the same today, where a luxurious deluxe remaster of the film crashed onto our shores just last year from Second Sight Films. I haven't managed to get my hands on this version yet, but despite its teething snags, you would be amiss to not snag yourself a piece of film history and situate this film proudly on your shelves. And that's unfortunately all we've got time for, folks. As it's you guys who make the show worthwhile to continue, I need to thank everyone who regularly interacts with the show, including the guys from Screaming Queens like the wonderful Johnny Larkin and Jonathan Butler. Gore Blimey, as ever, is always showing his support, so thanks for that, as well as Kristen Hawes, who regularly smacks a like or two on our posts. There's also Paul Chandler, Lee Coys, Peter Schmidt, Mark Armstrong, Chris Ward, Amanda Reyes, Gav Crimson, Daniel Budnick, and Andrews 198205. They also interact are very often too, and I love hearing from all of you on Twitter, so thanks very much for all your support. And also special thanks to Darren Burrows from Facebook as well. You always take the time to like our stuff and it's so appreciated, so cheers to you as well. You won't be shocked to discover though that we're back next week either, this time focusing on our last instance of rape and revenge films, covering the British acid trippy escaped lunatic flick Killer's Moon and Abel Ferrara's urban grime revenge tale Miss 45. Until then, I'll be enjoying my 28th birthday this weekend and imbibing copious amounts of wine and snaffling loads of party grub. Well, mainly crisps, probably. So until next week, don't be a stranger. Toodaloo! Toodaloo!